Welcome to Cinelit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and I'm joined by my co-host Daryl Buxton for this very special episode of Cinelit. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. All set to go today. Looking forward to this. Yes, it should be a good one today. As listeners may know, I am the cinema programmer at Quad in Derby in the heart of England. And as part of our remit to bring out the treasures of cinema to Derby cinema screens, we run two film festivals. Derby Film Festival is the first one. It's a broader festival focusing on new cinema from around the world. The festival mainly looks at, for want of a better word, art house cinema, world cinema. But our second festival is Paris Cinema Film Festival, whose remit is very different. It is to look at the wide world of genre cinema, covering horror, sci-fi, fantasy cinema, but also looking at the rich variety of genres, subgenres like martial arts movies, exploitation movies. British sex comedies, Japanese movies, anything that isn't easily digested by the mainstream, I think, is our, is our remit. And Daryl is on our uh, selection committee for Paris Cinema and for Derby Film Festival. But particularly, his particular set of skills come in handy for Paris Cinema, I must say. So when Daryl reported back from the excellent Horror on Sea Festival in South End that there was an acid western that had been made in location in Kidderminster and Wales, well, it kind of fit the remit of Paris Cinema perfectly. So we'll be showing um, Day of the Stranger as part of Paris Cinema and Derby Film Festival, screening from the 19th to the 25th on, on our streaming platforms through the festival. And we are delighted today to welcome to the show the director of Day of the Stranger, Tom Lee Rutter. Tom, welcome to Cinelit. Hey, thanks for having us, guys. That's amazing. Yeah, it's good to be, be a part of it. Very good, very good. Um, <laughs> where, where to start, I think, with an acid western shot in Kidderminster in Wales? Why? Why, Tom? I think is the first, <laughs> is the, is the first plausible um, question to ask. Why do an acid western in Kidderminster? in England. Well, um, in Kidderminster and the surrounding areas, we've got a lot of sandstone. And um, so we've got some big rock formations and around the rock formations, you get a lot of sand as well. And there's a, there's a common called Hartleby Common. And we always drove past that to get to uh, our friend's house when we go visit our friends because he lived on a farm. And every time we drove past, it was like, wow, you could shoot a Western there. <laughs> and um, to, be fair, to be fair, though, Tom, I say yeah. that a lot about a lot of I don't go out and do it. And I think <laughs> saying it and then going out and actually doing it are two very different things. Well, it was um, a period of inactivity. I hadn't really started a film in a while. Uh, I did like a short the year before. So 2014, we're talking. I just thought, let's beat the inertia of Kidderminster and go out and make a film. And I just thought, well, I've already made films shot around friends' houses or my own house. So I just wanted to go that a little bit further and maybe try something different. And so we, we all went out on a hot day in, in April, a really uncharacteristically hot day in April. And we shot the first scene and we were we just couldn't believe how good the results looked for what we were doing with no budget. So we thought let's just pursue this and and make a western. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I love watching no budget films and you know, I love I love it when people try something a little bit different with no money. I don't care if you can see all the seams, it's just that they tried something different. I didn't want to go for the usual backyard slasher i thought i'd go with a backyard western <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's one that's one that's one that definitely comes through in in the finished product is that 
um, again, for want of a better word, the cojones to take on a, a Western That's <laughs> on, the on a zero word. budget. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, you, we've got so many nice vistas and uh, landscapes and we're, we're right in the middle of the countryside here. We're like semi-rural. So I just wanted to show off a lot of that as well as, um, you know, play cowboys and Indians somewhere, you know. <laughs> Tom, you, you mentioned there the, the, the magic year 2014 a minute ago. Um, tell us the story about how you started the film in 2014 and how it premiered in January this year. Well, that's a good one. Um, so naturally... Uh, in, going in a out, nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell, <laughs> is that we bit off more than we could chew, basically. We, we started off at quite a good momentum and then obviously it started to fall away and um, relationships started to fray. Everything you can imagine that came with the, the longevity of making a no-budget film started to show and, and just things started to go wrong, basically. And it didn't help that we started without a script. I mean, we just went out and just shot something, and then I thought, well, I've got to build a film around this. And um, so I was knocking out, like, the first rough draft which we started filming with, then I'd realise halfway through filming that it wasn't working, so we'd have to refilm, rewrite, and it was just a constant, um, it was just a constant, uh, you know, re reinvention of the film as we went along. I mean, I think you'd come about 2018. If somebody asked me what the film was about, I wouldn't be able to tell them. It, it got that muddled, <laughs> so it, it it became such a mess, and. Um, well, I just realised to kind of get the film finished to any standard, we'd have to just create more work for ourselves. And I'm, to be frank, I, I kind of got burnt out on it and had to give it a bit of a rest for a while. So I remember well, you coming to Paris Cinema, Tom, with your with your short Bella in the Witch Elm, which won our best short film that year. And I remember you asking me, I've, I've got this Western I'm doing, uh, I've shot half of it, I've shot half of it. Should I, do you think I should continue? And me, being the font of all amazing knowledge, went, knock it on the head, mate. Don't do it. <laughs> knock it on the head. Move on to something different. I'm glad, glad you did not take my advice. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I, that, you know, I was ready to bin it several times. And, you know, you weren't alone in that. A, a, lot of, a few friends said to me, well, if it's not working for you, just get, just get shot of it, you know. But then, you know, on the other hand, I'd show other friends like a rough cut or rough scenes and they'd just say, you've got to finish this, man. <laughs> I'm like, ah, OK. So and then in the meantime, um, my friend Craig, who was scoring the film, he was kind of halfway through scoring it. And I was telling him, please don't finish this score. You're wasting your energy on it. And he says, well, you know, I've started putting a lot of work to this now. You've got to finish it. <laughs> I'm thinking... <laughs> So there's a bit of a gun now. I've got to finish it. You know? No pressure. No it, just pressure. Said, it just said a very um, strange way of making a movie. Shooting scenes without a script, then binning the script after you've already shot stuff, and then finishing the film because you've already got the score. Yeah. It does feel like <laughs> quite a, a strange way of approaching filmmaking. It was how not to make a film, basically. <laughs> <laughs> But, I, I, you know, as, as people say in filmmaking, actually, it doesn't really matter how much time and effort went into making any piece mm. of film. It's what is on the screen at the end of the day. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, you've got something that's really good and that's something that you should be proud of and well, hopefully would ob obscure the hell that you went through making it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to have its detractors as much as it's going to have its admirers because it is like unashamedly no budget, and some people just won't be able to reconcile with that, whereas others will embrace it. So I'm happy that it's kind of a fringe film, really, for that reason, because it couldn't be anything other than a fringe film in that sense. Sure, and the the fact that it's an acid western as well. I mean, even if even if it was a normal western, I think that would put off a lot of modern viewers. You know, the fact that you've gone acid with it is is another sort of level of of off puttingness, if that's a word. You know, and and um, so yeah, you you're not uh, you're, you're not making it easy for the viewers, Tom. But I think I think the the, the crucial thing is the people who get the film. Yeah, we'll get it in a big way. Have, have you found that? Yeah, absolutely. It's made for the few, you know. It's made for those who've got that love for the, a the no budget DIY scene and the subgenre itself. And I could never make a regular western on the budget we had. I think if you're working with a no budget, you've got to go real subversive and show some weird stuff. You know, you've got to kind of bring all the madness to the table if you're working with no money because you've got to shine through somehow, you know. And uh, that's why it, it, you know, it had to be an acid western. It couldn't be a any of her kind of regular Western, you know. <laughs> sure. Now, me, me and Adam have both sort of dabbled in in low budget films. We, we've sort of scripted stuff that's been shot on low budgets, but uh, we've not got anywhere near the experience that you've got of, of doing this. I know you've been around for some years and it's been great to watch your, your career sort of develop and, and to the point where you can make something like this because... Uh, um, I, I think the film has, has come out uh, really, really well. And I think it stands up there with um, the, the great acid westerns of the past. What, what's your feeling about the finished product? Um, uh, mixed, mixed feelings, because um, when we started the film, again, it was I was that haphazard DIY point-and-shoot filmmaker. And to a degree, I still am, but with a lot more pl- uh, pre-planning in place now. So um, the film's a hybrid of, like, of my progression as a filmmaker so you got the end the end point which is where we we all knew what we were doing we we planned a lot and we tackled it head on um uh, and then the start of it where we were just all a big muddled mess just um haphazardly pointing and shooting and seeing what happened so you know it's it's got it it's got its flaws but i i think i really hated the film up until we premiered it and then when i saw how it went down with an external audience um i kind of made peace with it really because i suppose the curse of the art the creator is that they're always going to be critical of their work and when i saw that it could play without you know um without me having to explain myself and uh, having to uh tell people how unhappy about it then i thought well you know what maybe this has got a life um, beyond, you know, my editing room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In in the in the mid seventies through to the late seventies, Francis Ford Coppola was working on Apocalypse Now, of course, with all all the sort of chaos that you had, but on a massive, massive budget. And one one thing that your film's got in common with Coppola is that you had to recast one of the major roles. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So um, we're working with this guy who I'd recently done a music video for, and. Um, and he wanted to get into acting, and so I says, "Well, let's the, let's put you in this western, you know." And again, in the haphazard way that we started, I just gave him the role without wondering whether he was capable of this role because a lot of the imagery that he'd, um, you know, using in his music and whatnot would be of the western oriented. And so I thought, "Well, that's just a, that's a magic fit, you know." And he was actually 
you know, he gave a lot of enthusiasm and time to the project. I mean, I could never fault that. And, um, and again, he wanted everything finished. And don't get me wrong, I wanted it finished. But it got to the point where he became so impatient that he he was starting to get very demanding and and also not actually seeing it from my perspective. He just wanted it out there so he could promote himself. And obviously, the, the more I tried to finish it in this form, the more I realized his role wasn't working with him in the role. You know, he wasn't bringing to the table what was intended. And I couldn't see the woods for the trees for so long that it took me to actually like take a step back. And when our, our friend our relationship had kind of frayed to the point where he was actually making me like he was putting me off the making the film and and finishing the film. And things reached, uh, you know, an ugly point where, you know, he was getting very abusive. He was drinking a lot and and then sending me all these you know abusive messages. And then the next day, you know, he'd act like it didn't happen. And then at one point, he even started to kind of, you know, promote his own version of the film that he was going to make with some other filmmakers. So in a sense, he took ownership over the thing, which was quite incredible. I mean, one day I remember logging on to Facebook and then I'd seen that he'd made his own posters for his own film called The Return of the Mysterious Stranger. And I thought, <laughs> well, how is he returning if he hasn't even been here yet? And so. Things reached, uh, you know, a, a point where we were able to kind of remove him from the project, and I thought the film is definitely dead in the water now. And um, and I'd worked with uh, Gary Baxter on my latest film, and we had such a cool, like fun day with him uh, that it was thought over and suggested that maybe he could come in and we could reshoot the role. And at the time, the idea was so daunting to me that I thought, well, how could we even do that? Because we would travel up and down the country to Wales and back. And and I watched the film and I singled out all the shots with the stranger character. And then I wrote all the scenes down and thought, actually, this is doable, you know. So in, again, a hot August in 2019, we had Gary come to Kidderminster and over two solid days of filmmaking, we got all of his scenes in the can. And he absolutely nailed the part. And it was exactly what we wanted from the part, you know. And, and so Gary, remember... Gary, filmed in, Gary filmed in two days what the other guy had taken about three years to do then, sort yeah, of over yeah. weekends and stuff, right. yeah. I mean, the reason we were reshooting again uh, back then is partly because of my fault with my, you know, the ham-fisted writing or misdirection but also his lack of you know uh goods that he was bringing to the role so i was increasingly unhappy but gary came and just absolutely nailed these scenes you know i mean we weren't doing many takes at all yeah he really stands out tom in the in the movie and i don't know whether that's maybe because when you were directing him you knew a bit more about what the film was going to be at that point yeah. so you could direct him better but he really it rocks on screen in, in, in many ways. Oh, it's definitely a mixture of the two. I mean, I was able to look at what the, the what the film was shaping up into being, and then I thought I could rewrite these scenes and make them even better. And because Dale, uh, who plays Kane, was there from day one, he knew exactly what to bring to the role as well. So we were just all on the top of our game, and Gary had learned all his lines. And then he did, you know, he took a a couple of hints of direction but for the most part he really inhabited that character and he was the, one of the first actors I've worked with who 
really did inhabit the character when he was dressed as the stranger. He was the stranger. It was so weird because <laughs> it just <laughs> wasn't Gary anymore. So it was amazing. It really was. Yeah, he's really, he was really good. I mean, he really reminded me of Bob from Twin Peaks. Oh, um, yeah. I'm looking at that. God, he's so much like Bob. It's like really challenging that Lynchian vibe there with that. There was this weird kind of, you know, redneck vibe going on. There's a bit of a Charlie Manson vibe going on. And that was just exactly the melting pot that we wanted, really, you know. So couldn't be happier with Gary. He was absolutely amazing. He saved the film. <laughs> Now, talk a bit, Tom, about uh, who, who this character is and because he derives from uh, an unusual source. Absolutely. Well, I think, well, obviously around the time we started the film, uh, there was a clip from Will Vinton's uh, film, The Adventures of Mark Twain, and it had kind of gone a bit uh, viral because it was being touted on the internet as this scene that was too shocking for children, you know, this scene from a kid's film which was too dark for kids or whatnot. Yeah, isn't, was, isn't it called on? It's still on YouTube, I think, and it's called something like "creepiest scene from a kids' film ever" or something like that. So, uh, so listeners can look that up and watch that. It blew my mind how, how deep it was and how dark it was. And obviously, then I, I set to reading the the source text, and that was that that was a tricky uh, task in itself because there's about three or four versions of of Mark Twain's well, unfinished story of The Mysterious Stranger. So uh, as I was reading it, I just thought, well, this would make a real good adaptation for a Western. <laughs> They're just The two ideas just came together, and, uh, and I just thought, well, that would be great because it's, um, it's deep, it's quite nihilistic, really. Um, but uh, the best Westerns are nihilistic and doom-laden, so that kind of just married well for me. So the the stranger itself um, is basically the devil, you know, in more explicitly the devil in Mark Twain's story. But in the film, we wanted to point towards that. But we also wanted to make him a possible figment of the character's imagination, um, and we wanted him on these, you know, on this. I don't know. I suppose you could call, call it a crossroads of. Um, a potential afterlife. He's not exactly descending to a hell because he's possibly descending into his idea of hell because he's from, you know, the pious Wild West, you know. <laughs> so the stranger could be, uh, an, you know, an incarnation of the devil himself, or he could just be Dale's idea of a man who's more of a man than he is. And, you know, it, it's a melting pot of possibilities, which is what I like to see it as, really. I looked at the character and it really felt like it was um, drawing from those Western myths as it was. You know, you think you think of like um, uh, High Plains Drifter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, what was the other one I was thinking of? Uh, obviously, Stephen King's Gunslinger, the man yeah. in black, that kind of character. And again, Stephen King's The Stand, where you have the, the character, very similar vibe going on in those things. Where, where, where was it just from that from that mysterious stranger, or was he drawing from other westerns as well? Oh yeah, I mean, he was going to be the, the typical western badass. You know, he was the he was a, a shit hot shot at everything, and you know, he, he he never missed, and he just did everything better than than the, the protagonist did. And obviously, you know, westerns are all about uh, degrees of masculinity and masculine identity, and like my old man used to love John Wayne because John Wayne was, you know, a man's man. So was, I wanted to kind of deconstruct that, really, and peel away the layers of what it took to be a man. And obviously, to do that, we needed a, a character who was more manly than 
<laughs> or better at being a man than our protagonist was. So he he just encapsulated the, the, you know, all the badasses that you'd see in a Western, really, and a little bit more. So we go a little bit deeper, a little bit more knowing. I wanted him to be like some guy who was a bit more of a shaman, who's, you know, he was sitting up in the hills for long enough that he was doing all the peyote. <laughs> But I didn't want to explicitly bring those kind of drug references into it, really. I just wanted him to make him more of a supernatural being than that. So it's a mixture of the traditional sense and obviously a more cosmic sense. I mean, that's that's one thing about uh, the the classic acid westerns. I think you know um, the the um, the people that sort of came up with that term rather led their readers and audiences to believe that these were sort of films where cowboys were sort of shooting up all the time or as you say taking peyote or whatever and um, they're really not like that i I think um the uh, the the idea of the acid western isn't that you're watching cowboys taking drugs it's that you're watching cowboys do stuff that you think you're hallucinating and um and i think i think that's something you've absolutely nailed in your film I mean, obviously, that that a lot of that came from the sort of like Western publishing, where you had that strand of Western publishing, where it was weird westerns, where it was westerns but with a supernatural element to it, or something like that, which added that that was that was rich in the in the subculture around um, first half of the uh, of the century. Last century. Yeah, and as as you say, Adam uh, Clint Eastwood is someone who really, really has picked up on that over the years and put that into his movies, and not just his westerns either. But I mm. think, um, I think you know, uh, when you look at a character like High Plains Drifter or Pale Rider or Unforgiven, you know, these guys are on that sort of plane where they're 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 sort of hovering between life and death. And um, I think uh, um, Dale as Kane in your film is right there too. And, and Gary playing the stranger really sort of um, spars off him and against him, you know. And uh, I think it's a, a real success, you know. I think you've really absolutely got that just right. Thank you, yeah. So, yeah, basically, yeah, Gary had to be the uh, quintessential ferryman for Dale, really. <laughs> and I think it really it comes across. And going back to High Plains Drifter, you know, I mean, that that was one of those uh, films I watched and I couldn't believe how much of a horror film it was, you know. Mm, I mean, yeah. almost like John Carpenter had directed it, you know, incredible. And I just love films that are of a natural genre mash, not for a gimmicky sense. I mean, a great film encapsulates most genres into one and and it took the western to really kind of stand out for me in that sense especially um el topo and as you say you know these acid westerns don't actually depict people taking drugs but Jodorowsky himself said he wants his films to be the drug yeah <laughs> well that's that's like what 15 20 minutes we've been talking now and we've only just mentioned alejandro Jodorowsky, <laughs> the sort of uh, yeah, gigantic weird chilean elephant in the room there um, yeah. <laughs> yeah so let's talk about you we, we me and daryl did a podcast and uh, rebecca did a podcast earlier on in the year um, one of our very I, first wasn't it? one of yeah. our very first our second podcast yeah all about alejandro Jodorowsky. and i don't think we scratch the surface in that podcast <laughs> i think uh, what what obviously he was a big influence on this what do what do you what did you draw from him and his films for, for making um, a he's, he's a filmmaker that just encapsulates everything life everything you know all the facets of life the ugliness the beauty and 
I initially watched Santa Sangre. This is the first film I watched of his, and I just could not believe what had happened uh, before my eyes. It changed my life. And um, at the time, El Topo and the Holy Mountain weren't as readily available. Um, I know Vision Video released a kind of really uh, rough-looking cut of the Holy Mountain, but El Topo was really quite impossible to get hold of. I think the first mention of El Topo I ever heard was the making of The Exorcist because they had the same Foley um, artist who was making all the sound effects for like Reagan's neck spinning round. I remember an, an anecdote about him using his leather wallet to um, to make that sound. And they mentioned El Topo and I thought, well, what, what's this film? And there's that little seed that gets planted in your head and the name Jodorowsky just... And then I saw the trailer for The Holy Mountain and I remember thinking, what on earth is this, you know? And when I finally got around to seeing Santa Sangre, my mind just went, wow. <laughs> so, and the same experience happened when I finally come to watch El Topo. It just, it was a film that encapsulated everything. It was funny. It was scary. It was violent. It was beautiful. It was, he, you know, he, he, he depicts all religions, all kinds of spirituality. He depicts society as the enemy, you know, you know, the, the capitalism and the, the violence. And it, it was just a film that just gave me such a wholesome experience. I thought there's really nobody quite like this who's ever done this, you know, in cinema for me. And and I worshipped him for so long after that. <laughs> it took him a while to wash him out of my soul. <laughs> I think the, the 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 sort of mess of your production, which we've already talked about, and and the sort of uh, the the long period over which the shoot took place, has really benefited from the fact that someone like Yodorovsky exists. Because um, you you say in your DVD commentary, in in the Blu-ray commentary, that. Um, you know, there are anachronisms that sort of creep in that aren't supposed to be there. You know, um, anachronisms are a big part of the acid Western, but yours are sort of there by by accident, you know. And then <laughs> there's one particular shot where Dale, um, towards the end of the movie, you cut in some footage of him without his beard, without his facial hair. And you're sort of complaining about that on the commentary. But as I was watching that and listening to you talk, I thought, well, in El Topo, halfway through the film, Alejandro Jodorowsky cuts off all his hair. Yes. So it fits for me. How how much did that sort of make you come to terms with, with what you'd made? And that if you had put something anachronistic in there by accident, or if your footage didn't quite match, or if the shots didn't quite match, at what point did you sort of embrace that? Yeah, well, it's... It, it's always bringing that anarchic sense of well, anything can happen. And when you when you're making experimental films, it's being able to have that freedom to throw in anything you want. And when I make films, usually I do usually have that uh, sense of well, why not just throw it in? It doesn't matter, does it? You know, why not just throw that in? Why won't? Why shouldn't that work? And um, and then I suppose I reached a point in editing where I wished I was more of a, a more polished filmmaker, maybe. So I kind of started going against that idea, and then. When it came to watching it again and watching Dale walk through all these different potential planes of existence, I figured, well, he would have different levels of facial hair because the possibilities are endless now. You know, he's he's in a metaphysical world where he could be looking at a, an earlier version of himself or a, a later version of himself. So anything goes. So I thought, well, in a sense, you're looking at dream logic, and in dream logic, anything goes. I mean, originally, when we were making the film, I wanted him to 
wander so like far into this vast landscape that he'd end up in present day. And we were going to have a couple of ramblers walk behind him, but I decided against the idea in the end. So that's great. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I love uh, Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain, and of course Monty Python and the Holy Grail sort of end up end up like that as well. So, uh, so you know, and Blazing Saddles as well, Daryl. Yeah, of course, <laughs> the, the classic, the, the great acid western. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I could have shared a lineage with those endings and just gone on the. Uh, but originally, the original script did have a lot of meta. Um, references in like uh, about the script itself showing up in one scene there's a scene where dale's in this altered state and he visits gary shell's loom weather again which is a scene i had to completely create in the editing because that scene originally starred the original actor playing the stranger so i had to completely remove him and restructure the scene and originally the original actor playing the stranger and gary shell were discussing the script so it went all meta and i just realized later on throughout the film that Maybe I just need to cut those little bits out and just hint towards it a little bit more than make it more explicit. I think it was mainly a result of me being a bit more self-conscious and a bit self-aware. I wanted to make it more of a product of what it is without having to say this is a no-budget film shot in England, you know? So... I think, yeah, sometimes those meta-references in films of a low budget feel like a safety net. That's yeah. there more for the filmmaker than, than actually improving the screenplay. And exactly I think taking that, those out... Yeah presenting it as it is, is point, um, throughout, the, throughout all these psycho, psychedelic visuals when he was really spinning out i was going to zoom back on the computer monitor of me editing the film. <laughs> but i decided against it you know the way yeah. the way it's come out is is just perfect really you know i think i think you've uh you've, you've got just the right tone you've not done too much of that sort of stuff you've just put little bits and pieces in there by accident or design you know and i think you've you've you've, you've, you've sort of embraced the uh the accidents i wanted to ask about um the differences between shooting something like bella in the witch helm which you you shot in black and white and i i think the use the use of color and the use of grading in the in day of the stranger is a, a, a standout you know it's 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 something that audiences seeing the film will really notice the the, the use of color and the use of design elements and so on. So uh, could you talk a little bit about, well, what do you prefer to shoot in black and white or colour? And what do you see as the differences between this movie and something like Bella? Well, um, with Bella, it's purely down to, again, the necessity of having no money. And uh, again, black and white is the ultimate safety net for a no-budget filmmaker because... You can let thing you can let things blend together seamlessly and look richer than what it is. And Bella was the perfect example of me burning out on Day of the Stranger and not quite getting the film right. So I just took that step back. And the best thing about Bella, what really kind of relaxed me, was the fact that the film wasn't um, a linear narrative. It was all vignette based with no dialogue. And again, with Day of the Stranger, we we're filming without. Uh, without a mic so i had to redub a lot of so the sound was giving me a lot of grief and issues and i couldn't quite get the colors right because as you say the colors are really quite bright and vibrant but i was really really self-conscious about exploring color with the no budget so i retreated and did better and shot little vignettes of scenes and then strung it together with a narrator and that to me was just such a breath of fresh air that i was able to really control what I was playing with and working with to uh, to create a result that I was happy with. 
and then going back to Stranger, the, the amount of times that I regraded it and recut it and tried all these different grains, and I just could never quite put my finger on the right look. And and eventually we got there, but it I just I just found myself in a lot more um unfamiliar territory playing with colour, you know, because Bella had become such a pleasing project that I've I found that I took solace in working with black and white and which is what I've continued to do since. But I'm really happy that you like the colours in Day of the Stranger because I was very worried about working with colour. Plus if you're using matte shots or matting images in, it's harder to blend them, you know, and create the right tones. So with black and white, it completely glosses all of that and masks over the lot. So it's a more of a, much more of a safety net working with black and white. But I am genuinely a big fan of black and white. But with colour, I'd love to play with it more. But again, it's being able to get all the elements right to make it work. I think there's a lot more work that been having to be put into filmmaking to make a really good colour film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the Western doesn't really... I mean, I don't feel like... I'm, I'm, I'm obviously I'm totally wrong because there's loads of black and white westerns, but I don't feel like the black and white westerns really pop as much as the as the colour ones. I mean, apart from Dead Man, Jim Jamush, which I'm a massive fan of, and then then in the acid western genre, Dead Man's just beautiful. But generally, it's the richness, it's the kaleidoscope of imagery from those style of westerns that really make them pop. Uh, whereas yeah. something like Bella, which is Perfect for black and white. Well, it's claustrophobic, isn't it? And obviously, uh, you know, with Day of the Stranger, you've got these vast landscapes that you really want to open up the world and and really kind of uh, show off your landscapes, you know. And then, I mean, at some point during the, the six-year period, we went on holiday to Morocco. So obviously I got my camera and, and shot all these landscapes. And we, ended up, we even ended up in the Sahara at one point. And one of the... One of the shots in Day of the Stranger is a composite of, of Dale walking along her, her, an horizon in Hartlebury Common, Kidderminster, <laughs> but matted into the Sahara. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and yeah. anyone watching, try and pick that one out. Yeah, and, and, and any actor thinking they're going to get a good holiday from working with Tom, <laughs> no chance. Yeah, this, this, this ain't Star Wars, is it? You know, you're going to North Africa. Tom, you've already mentioned um, Adventures of Mark Twain or Comet Quest, as it was called over here. The the Will Binton film as a big influence. Daryl, so you're no better than I will. Just from, from here, but was it called Comet Quest purely to cash in on that once in a lifetime marketing opportunity of Haley's comet arriving near Earth in '86? <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. That is that is that is the genius of exploitation filmmaking, then, isn't it? Yeah, cashing yeah, in that's, on that's, a comet's arrival. Yeah, yeah, big big news in '86. So, was, uh, I remember, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to ask as well about the um, the, the the more close to home influences. Uh, so basically, I suppose the simple question is: What are your own favourite acid westerns? Well, El Topo goes without saying because to me that's the daddy of acid westerns. I mean. It's the daddy of head trips in them. It's the you know the quintessential midnight movie, um, but then obviously it opened up to more to the other ones that are out there, like Greaser's Palace. Again, that was another experience that I when I initially watched it. By the end of it, I was enlightened and I was blown away. I found it more of a challenging watch because it's a lot more surreal and abstract. I mean, at least at the core of Jodorowsky's film, 
there's a there's a hero's journey or a character's journey who transforms himself, he's reborn. But in Greece's palace, it's a lot more abstract, you know. Um, yeah, Jodorowsky's film is almost conventional in in comparison. It does follow that that uh, that standard um, sort of journey that that you know is one of the the sort of seven stories of cinema, I guess. And and uh, yeah. Rob, Robert Downey Senior, who who uh, um, directed Greece's Palace, as you say, takes us on on this whole other trip, you know. And it was in, really incredible. I mean, it was violent and funny, much like. The, the kind of experience you want to have at Acid West and you want to feel everything, you know? And even at the end when the woman who's crawling through the desert throughout the whole film and getting shot, she reunites with her family and, and I felt much more emotional than I should have done and it, he, he, he gave me all the emotions in one film but not explaining any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a real interesting film and, and um, I revisited it once since and I found it even more abstract than I did before since. So. That was high up there in the Acid Western Pantheon for me. And on on another level, which came before El Topo, it was the shooting. And uh, again, a much more different experience because it was a lot subtler. Uh, it was definitely a countercultural film, but it played out as a Western, you know. And I think uh, you've got you've you've elaborated on this uh, more explicitly, Darrell. But th- those subversions are there, but in a much more subtle manner, you know. So you're hitting all these different notes of Acid Western here, you know. Now, for people who don't know, the shooting is a mid-60s film directed by Monty Hellman. And um, it's the film that most analysts and most film critics regard as the first Acid Western. So it's it's a very important one. Yeah, I defer to your knowledge, Daryl. But oh, it seems to me that, that the obviously the Western is rooted in the American continent. It doesn't seem to be the, uh, an area where European filmmakers have traditionally gone into. It seems to be the domain of American filmmakers, South American filmmakers, who have looked at the acid western so, and and people from Kidderminster. Would you guys all agree, though, that the um, the so called spaghetti western sort of shifted that ground a little bit, and suddenly you were watching westerns that weren't set in Dodge City necessarily. You, you didn't quite know where they were set. And I think that's almost a bridge between the conventional American Western and what Jodorowsky and Robert Downey and Dennis Hopper and the guys in the 70s were doing. Yeah. Also following the villains more so, weren't we, when we came to the Revisionist and uh, yeah. the Westerns, we were following really morally uh, dubious characters and we were, we were forced to um, identify with them. And again, El Topo, the, the gunslinger in El Topo, he's not a good person. It's only up until he uh, he sees him for what he is and for what life is that he decides to become a good person, which is beautiful because then society itself is the enemy, you know, as, as yeah. depicted in the second half of the film. The the American dream is one built in on blood and, and pillaging, you know, and it, it's one in decay already. Sure. Quite. I mean, quite often the plots of a, a, you know, one of the sort of standard plots of a Western is gang rides into town and takes it over and the townspeople have to sort of fight back. When you're dealing with something a bit more philosophical or a bit more metaphysical, and I think the Italian Westerns that were often shot in Spain leave you without that sense of place, you know, and uh, um, suddenly the audience have got to deal with a whole different thing. It's It's not guys in white hats against guys in black hats anymore it's yeah. it's it's 
the conflict of, of a person's soul or something like that, you know, or it's got these sort of biblical or metaphysical concerns. I think your movie really sort of grasps that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, one of my favourite spaghetti westerns is Fatcher a Fatcher. Again, it's the perfect role reversal. The, the bandits are actually the, the good guys because they're full of soul. They're the countercultural uh, uprising. And then you've got the bullied, um, I think he's a, a teacher in the film, he's bullied, and then he become, he rises to you know, lead a sense of uh, fascism and totalitarianism, and it's almost like his bitter revenge on the world. So, you know, you think this mousy kind of guy is going to become the, you know, this good guy against all these so-called bandits, but in, in respect, the bandits are the ones with the soul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> do you think that there's some there's something in the sort of maybe the religions of the country that feeds into these films because like you're thinking like south america and spain and italy catholic countries a lot of searching in the soul and that kind of stuff happening in these things i don't want to start unpacking that with Jodorowsky because he clearly studied every religion going and he was into his taoism and his uh and sure. he was he wanted to make a film that addressed every religion going, I think. <laughs> yeah, but I meant in the sense that feeding into that, his, his, his wanting to do that, obviously, booked against a predominantly Catholic country, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and countercultural things where religion was nothing and moving everything away and searching for other answers. Searching for answers, I guess. Yeah, I think it's... Um... You get a, a central character who has an awakening, which is a different way of thinking, and it goes against um, the herd or the you know, the society, which is believing in one god, and and it goes against where, and he's obviously outcast for it, and they they respond with violence, mm. <laughs> as 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 often the case. <laughs> you can compare all that with the, with something like Greece's Palace, which is. Um, a very religious movie on its own terms because it uh, it basically in a weird weird way tells the story of Jesus Christ yeah but in an, an extraordinary unconventional movie you uh, Robert Downey's telling this very very well-known story or the, the greatest story ever told if you like you know and and um Howard the Duck <laughs> oh, sorry sorry <laughs> we knew you'd chip that one in adam yeah yeah <laughs> but uh yeah yeah I, th I think this whole question of of, of religion is uh, is a really interesting one it's one that uh this this strand of cinema really does try to tackle and uh there have been a couple of movies uh, greece's palace and then um uh, the italian film kioma later on which also was a very sort of christ-like movie um, sort of came in at the tail end of the spaghetti western, but turned out to be one of the very best ones. Uh, um, but but that handles religion again in a much more conventional, much more linear way. And as you say, Yodorovsky and some of the other guys just just explode the whole thing. And you know, it's it's something that hasn't died since. I mean, you look at America today, and the, the separation of church and state is now non-existent. You know, oh. so it's still relevant. To, it's still relevant material to play with. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, Tom, what's next? I mean, you've done. Uh, it's hard to hard to follow up on an acid western, isn't it? What do you do? Where do you go next after doing that? Oh, I'd love to make another Western, but with more money. I'd love to go yeah. to Almeria and do it properly, but... Um, do a gangster film in Rotherham or something like that. 
are, are you going to do a Jodorowsky and follow follow Tom's El Topo with Tom's The Holy Mountain? <laughs> Possibly. Well, I have ideas that will go into that maybe marry the because I'm, I'm I'm a filmmaker of two halves at the moment. I like to make I like those head trip films and I like films that are you know experimental and colourful and quite psychedelic. But I'm also a huge fan of drawing from my silent film aesthetics and and really claustrophobic uh, little Victorian pieces. And my next feature is the pocket film of Superstitions, which is a spiritual follow-up to Bella, because I had such a good time with Bella, and I wanted to kind of explore the techniques I was using to make Bella, but on a much broader scale. So it's a big vignette-based um, look at different various superstitions through the ages. I'm basically remaking Hexen, unashamedly. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I was doing with Bella, and I'm doing it again here. Um, and after that, I want to make a, a, maybe a marriage of the two, really. Something that is quite biblical, quite psychedelic, quite horrific, but also quite um, stark and classical looking. I don't know. We'll see. But this pocket film of superstitions is where I'm coming from next. Great. We look forward to that. And uh, by the sound of it, then you're, you're heading towards doing... Uh... Uh, all, almost like a, a silent movie acid western. Well, that would be really interesting. I mean, uh, whatever's going to happen next, it's going to involve big landscapes. Um, so I want to capture some more epic-looking vistas and marry that with uh, some of these styles and aesthetics that I've already been playing with. So who knows? I mean, my ideas shift from one to the next all the time. I've got a list of films that I think, this is the next film. And then the next day I'm thinking, no, no, that's the next film. And then it usually just takes me to pick up a camera and spontaneously shoot something for something to grow. I mean, interestingly enough, the pocket film of Superstitions grew out of my frustration of working with so many people when I can't pay them. So therefore I'm relying on their, you know, their kindness and their time. So I thought, well, let's try and make a film with no people at all and just maybe use hands. And then I started thinking about doing a two-minute film on superstitions. And ironically, that's become the film with the biggest cast that I've ever ever worked with. <laughs> Possibly the most money I've thrown at a film. So you can't you can't second guess this game really, you know. So So when when's the ETA for Pocket Film of Superstitions, Tom? Well, we're meant to be much further into the process, but obviously as of 2020, throwing a massive Spanner in the works. Um, we're a bit behind, but I've got about 30, 35% left to film. We've got some more special guests on board to turn in roles. We shot with Caroline Monroe back in February, so it was a great start of the year. And obviously March onwards, it kind of all went out the window. So I'm hoping to get another couple of special guests involved, uh, a couple of really um, ambitious sequences to you know, to get to get in the can. But other than that, um, I'm hoping next year we'll see a finished cut. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to it immensely. Thank you so much for coming on. As I say, your film will be playing online as part of Paris Cinema from the 19th to the 25th. So listeners, do take note and do try and tune in and check out Day of the Stranger. Cool. Uh, that wraps us up for another one. We will be back next time with a interview with a good friend of Tom Lewis's. Uh, Michael Fausti will be on the podcast to talk about his new film, Exit, which is playing also at Paris. So until then, we will see you soon. Take care.